We thank you, Lord, for every good and perfect gift comes from you. So all worthy God and Savior, receive these gifts. Multiply them to the advancement of your kingdom here and around the world that you would receive now and forever the glory, the honor and praise. It is due your name through Jesus. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. I'm obviously deviating for this message from the series on Matthew. Um, Most of you know, hopefully by now, that uh, this is my last sermon with you as your pastor. Maybe someday you'll have me back as a guest preacher, but God needs to move in a lot of ways for that to happen for me. I, I am about to enter into a season where I have a congregation of one. And my congregation sleeps with me. I know that sounds rather risque, but, um, <clears throat> but at least that's uh, God's providence in this season. And you know what? It's all good. We're okay. Now... <clears throat> Uh, I do want to mention, though, that um, though this is my last sermon as your pastor for this season, um, I will still be around. Uh, we will be around for a while. Uh, we, our plan is to move to get close to one of our sons. We need a robust support, and so that makes logical sense And there are other reasons we don't need to go into all of that. But I will be here technically as your pastor for the month of May. During that time, I'll be performing another a number of lighter pastoral duties, uh, planning the worship services, assisting Greg in getting him positioned to take some of that work. And also, um, uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to lead at least some of the services, if not all the services in the month of May. There's a baptism. Uh, that we got next uh, Sunday, and uh, we're excited about that, and uh, God willing, I'll be here for that. So, um, so it's not a complete farewell yet, but this is a farewell sermon, and that's why I've entitled it Parting Encouragements, and it's why I've drawn from this, I'm drawing it from this particular passage in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as you read through the New Testament, there are at least three places in the writings of Paul or in the life of ministry of the Apostle Paul where he says goodbye. He was constantly saying hello and planting churches in new environments and then departing and entrusting them into the Lord and to his favor and to the leaders raised up through his ministry. And so he, he, his life in ministry was filled with many goodbyes. I've had other ones besides this one, but I must tell you that this one is a particularly bittersweet one. More on that in a moment. But, um, in this letter, in Paul's letter, his second letter to Timothy, there was a goodbye section. And, uh, there was this famous goodbye to the elders at the church of Ephesus. 
on the beach outside of that great massive city called Miletus, a, a little remote place. And they gathered there and they kneeled on the beach together and he gave them a farewell message. And each time he blends the theme of encouragement and exhortation. And actually, did you know that uh, in New Testament Greek, the word for to encourage and the word to exhort is the exact same word. It's the word parakaleo. And that word is used in the noun form rather than the verb form as a name for the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the comforter, the Holy Spirit is the encourager, the Holy Spirit is the exhorter, the paraclete. And so this word parakaleo in the verb form uh, gathers up all of that. It, it literally means, parakaleo means to be called alongside to help. Uh, and so it carries the idea of comfort, the idea of consolation and encouragement, but also the idea of urging or appealing or exhorting, maybe even rebuking. So it is simultaneously both a pat on the back and a boot in the pants. Can I do with that, that with you today? I hope that you will hear with every boot in the pants a pat on the back and vice versa. So it is both a cheer and a challenge. So as we unpack this passage, we do it according to these headings. Encouraged by tenderness to stay tough. Encouraged to a community that cures relationships. Encouraged to rejoice in our relationships, our relationship with God. And encouraged to practice what promotes peace and purity. You can follow along in the sermon outline in the bulletin if you wish to do so. So our first point, encouraged by tenderness to stay tough. You see that duality of both encouragement and exhortation. Notice the words in verse 1. Love, longed for, joy, crown. By the way, Eastbridge, I love you. I long for you. You are, in many special ways, my joy and my crown. I don't mean to sound apostolic here. I'm not an apostle. Far from it. But I think that those terms and phrases aptly describe my heart toward you. But then there's the stay tough part. Notice that he says, stand firm. And then in verse 2, he said, I entreat more on that later. But <clears throat> Paul said, even to the wayward and rebellious and dull-witted licentious Corinthians in chapter 4 of his first letter to them, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And you remember the way he addressed the Thessalonians in uh in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you know how like a father, 
He changes from mother to father. But both are categories of intimacy and engagement. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You, dear Eastbridge, are indeed our joy and our crown. By the way, Jenny wished badly that she could be here today. And she certainly is in spirit, if not in body. And the uniqueness about your place in our journey is that you come in the twilight years of our ministry that puts you, I believe, in a very uh, unique place in our personal history. And though we have faced together a number of difficulties and challenges, for the most part, this has been a very pleasant patch in our ministry life. In fact, I don't know if I've ever told you, but before we came here, as we were praying about this and wrestling with the decision, God laid this verse on our hearts from Psalm 16. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Mount Pleasant. (laughs) We call it Mount Perfect or Mount Plastic. But for us, it has been, in many ways, Mount Pleasant because of you. He goes on to say, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So, but there is this tough part, isn't there? There's this tough part of accompanying these tender words. And and it's an urging to do what? Look at verse 2, the second half of verse 2. Stand firm. By the way, this is a military term. It, it, uh, how many of you have ever heard a master sergeant bellow a command? There's a handful of you here who have heard it in person or you have seen it in movies. And that's what this is like. Stand firm. Don't budge. Don't yield an inch. Never, never surrender. How's that for a tough part? Right on the heels of such tender, intimate expressions. We are called in our day to stand firm on the great moral questions of our time. Homosexuality and gender confusion. It's not a hormonal uh, disposition nor genetic accident. It is what the Bible declares it to be. And we must stand firm on that. Pornography is not a civil liberty. It's a crime against God and others. Adultery is not just a morally neutral personal choice. And abortion is not a reproductive right. It's the murder of human beings. But also, in addition to standing firm on the great moral questions and issues of our day, and I've mentioned only a few by way of illustration, we are first and foremost and primarily to stand firm on the gospel, to stand firm on the gospel, because as as important as these great moral issues of our time are, we must be clear, moral outrage will not change people. The gospel 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. And salvation not just in the sense of saving us from the burning pit, but changing us, transforming us now and forever. Only the gospel can do that. And we will not make an impact across the spectrum of any of the great moral issues I just mentioned and others, except to the degree that we live the gospel and lip the gospel. Live it and lip it. Say it and show it. Now, that's what is involved in being encouraged by tenderness to stay tough. Notice, secondly, that we are to be encouraged to a community that cures relationships. That's a big, been a big issue in this particular letter of the apostle and many others as well. If you look at chapter 1, verse 9, he says, he prays that their love may abound more and more. He's talking about their love for each other. Yes, their love for the Lord, but their love horizontally, not just vertically, but horizontally with one another. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I want to know that you will stand firm, that same word again, in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Notice he's saying that we, we stand not just individually in isolated commitment to the truths of morality and the truths of the gospel. But he's saying we must do it together in one spirit, as one man. And then chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You see, we cannot stand firm for righteousness if we're not striving fervently for relationships. In fact, contending for the faith, which is a good thing, can make us prone to challenge the fellowship. We get amped up over the issues, don't we? We become feisty, pugnacious, and it spills over into the way that we relate to one another. There's more aggression than affection in our demeanor and our style of relating. Now, I know the pervasive polarization that has been happening and building and building in our society has sprayed jet fuel on our proneness to be indignant. But, beloved, we are called to live differently than this world on this and in most things. If our commitment to righteousness does not tend to mend our relational wrongs and wounds, then our touted rectitude is defective and even deceptive. Spiritual fervency without faithfulness to spiritual community is a fraud. And we can be cause contenders without being community committed 
Believers in conflict can simply be commitment to the cause of Christ gone bad, gone sour, that's rotting on the vine. I don't believe it's too much to say that virtually the entire professing church today in America is pathologically dysfunctional in relationships. And we, as much as we want to be otherwise, we are being pickled in the brine of this pervasive relational dysfunctionality. I've spoken to you before about these things. And I must emphasize them in this parting encouragement. By the way, I believe that this is by far the single greatest saboteur of our evangelistic impact. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. And love for one another means that we hang in there on relationships and we let nothing, nothing, nothing divide us. Will you join me today, in this hour, in this moment, and saying, oh God, nothing in heaven, earth, or under the earth will divide me from this community of people. Will you join me in that? Now, the only thing that's separating me from you is a series of providences that are utterly beyond beyond me. And I know that can happen. But all too often, we let some of the most frivolous and ultimately insignificant things jettison us from one another. And instead of becoming those who stand against the prevailing culture of relational dysfunction, we end up actually contributing to it. This is my tender but tough appeal to you. And by the way, you're about to get a major challenge. You know what happens when you get a new pastor? People start bailing out, pulling the ripcord. Out of here, baby. This ain't for me. Listen, you've put up with a lot of stuff with me. I mean, really. And all God's people said, amen. Yeah. Well, guess what? You can put up with a lot of stuff for the next guy. You know? He's going to have feet of clay just like me. There's going to be the good and the bad and the ugly just like with me. Hang in there. Stand firm. Don't budge. So, by the way, this is why you've heard me say before that I think Matthew 18 is the most flagrantly disobeyed passage by Christians in all of the teachings of Christ. Matthew 18 is Jesus' classic teaching on how to manage and move through conflict relationally between believers. And even sometimes when we forgive each other, we then avoid each other. Yeah, I forgive you, but we essentially write each other off. We build walls of separation. We refuse to initiate and engage. And we drift apart even more. I 
I believe there's a very unfortunate translation. I'm sorry, I'm not a Greek genius, but uh, that word agree in verse 2, do you see where he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord? Yes, I ask you also, true true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see that word agree? What about when we don't agree? What about when we can't agree? We don't always agree. That's why I don't like this translation. This same word is used in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, and it means to be same-minded, to have the attitude toward those with whom we differ that is like the attitude of Jesus in his life and ministry and atoning death. By the way, do you think Jesus has ever had a different opinion about things than we do? You think Jesus has ever disagreed with us? (laughs) Disagreeing with each other is about as predictable as the sun rising in the east. I mean, come on. And, and, And it says there, concerning Jesus, have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he didn't cling to his rights. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself. How do we let our differences with each other, our frustrations with each other, our disappointments with each other cause us to recoil from each other? This happens under our own roofs, in our own homes. It happens in our spiritual community. It happens with neighbors and friends and extended family. Jesus massively disagrees with us, but he simultaneously moves toward us with an indomitable passion. He never avoids us. He puts our happiness above his own. He lets himself be run over, misunderstood, rejected, disregarded, disrespected, but he loved and laid down his life for those who wronged him, who abused him. This is so completely counterintuitive to what we believe And what the world teaches. He's saying you relate to one another in your problem relationships in this way. Let the cross be the pattern of all your relationships. And we're not sure in verse 3 who this true companion is. See that? That, that he, he enlists to be a partner in peacemaking and in the ministry of mediation with him, the, the literal translation of true companion, you may see it in the marginal, is yoke fellow. A person who had been yoked with him in ministry. What all this is saying is, you know the argument, it's none of my business, is often a cop-out. Listen, anything in my life or in your life that impacts negatively in the cross of Christ is the business of every other Christian because no man is an island. That is absolutely, fundamentally, constitutionally, in every way, 
utterly contrary to the way Americans think and believe. The gospel isn't just different than, than, than we are by nature. It is 180 degrees opposite. After all, don't we say we have a constitutional right to our privacy? And certainly we do. In many respects. Yes. But beloved, listen to me. We rise or we fall together spiritually. This is why you've heard me say so many times, the Christian life is a team sport. We desperately need each other. We need to stick to each other like white on rice. Now, i got to move quickly because time is hastening on. Not only are we encouraged by tenderness to stay tough and encouraged to a community that cures relationships, like in this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, two uh, women in the church who were having conflict with one another. And Paul reached out and enlisted others to assist in the healing of that fissure. Notice also, thirdly, that we're encouraged to rejoice in our relationship with God. It looks like he just throws this in. What has it got to do with the price of rice in China? doesn't seem to relate to the context. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He's pulling back in that theme of relationships in verses 2 and 3. The Lord is at hand. It's, this looks like, you know, soundbite messaging. <laughs> a little bit of this and a little bit of that. How does it all hang together? Well, first of all, rejoice. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven? <laughs> Vibrant Christian living is doing what? Like I said at the beginning of the service, doing heaven practice. That's what this table is. That's what it means when we gather together. It's like an appetizer course, a sneak preview, a shadowy foregleam of that day when we shall gather before his throne, every tongue, tribe, nation and people, as we sang earlier, giving glory and praise and honor to the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Well, one, another way to pull all this together is notice in verse 1, he says, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, be same-minded in the Lord. And here, rejoice in the Lord. You remember Paul's favorite prepositional phrase, in Christ, as we sang it earlier in the service today? In union with Christ. In other words, look, I, I know that union with Christ is really hard to understand because it's called fraught with mystery and stuff. Can I just get it, put it down on the bottom shelf for you? Here's what it means to be in union with Christ. Park your head and your heart and your hands in Jesus. Park in Jesus. In other words, we can't contend for the faith or we can't be committed to the fellowship if we are not living 
in gospel-generated joy. How many times have you heard me say that we enjoy our way into obedience? Enjoy what? Enjoy being loved when we should be getting the exact opposite. It's the gospel itself as expressed in that, in that theological rubric. We enjoy our way to obedience. It's the gospel that changes us in that way. Have you noticed in Galatians 5, in the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then he opens the love box and takes the other qualities out. And what's the first thing he pulls out of the love box? You remember what the second quality is? Joy. Joy. That's the second descriptor of the fruit of the Spirit because when love is manifest, and love is the sum, joy is the convincing evidence that love is real. Is your life suffused with joy? You know one of the things? There's been a huge encouragement to Jenny and I through what we've gone through. Is all the joy we've had through this difficult patch with, with her paralysis and her neck surgery and so forth. And we're looking at each other kind of blinking and going, where did this come from? We ought to be miserable right now. How come we're having so much joy? You know what's cool about that is the stuff I've been teaching you, God is making richly, existentially real to me in space, time, and history in my life. That'll bless your dirty heart. And so... Notice the way he develops this thought. See, this huge test of spiritual vitality is what makes you happy. Where do you find your joy? And in verse 5, he connects joy back to the verses 2 and 3, that relational harmony idea, spiritual civility idea. Because harmony happens when the heart, when the head and the heart are in heaven. Look at the end of verse five. The Lord is near. What's he talking about? He, he's talking about at least two things. Jesus is near now, but not yet. It gets, he gets nearer still. We enjoy his presence now. That's a foregleam of what uh, the Greek New Testament word parousia is appearing. Is coming again when we get near on steroids. So what, what he's saying is that the enjoyed love of Christ, his nearness, is the only reality that makes us like him, either in righteousness or in relationships. You see, when we are having heaven practice, we're having four gleams of the delirious enjoyment of his love now. Our squabbles don't matter anymore. <laughs> that stuff shrinks. Gone. Paul said, let your mind go to the end point. The Lord is near. The parousia, his appearing. 
and then live attitudinally backward from there. Import that viewpoint back into your current situation. And let those attitudes and perspectives guide you in your relationships. That's why he says, uh, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Do you see that? Reasonableness there is gentleness, mildness, patience. Let me ask you something. Be known to all men. How are you known? Are you a curt, rude, terse, gruff, harsh person, constantly butting heads with other people? I mean, just do a little relational inventory. Well, the last point, encouraged by tenderness to stay tough, encouraged to a community that cures relationship, and encouraged to rejoice in our relationship with God, we're encouraged to practice what promotes peace and purity in verses 6 through 9. Once again, notice the way that he puts it. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, is commended. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he's bundling up three themes in the practices that promote peace within us and purity within us. First of all, pray until you have peace. Ponder what's pure and praiseworthy. Pray until you have peace, verses 6 and 7. Ponder what's pure and praiseworthy, verse 8, and practice the patterns that prod you into his presence in verse 9. Let's very briefly unpack that. Do we live in an age of anxiety? Gee, wow. Low tolerance for any uncertainty and ambiguity. We're as nervous as somebody said as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> Worry. By the way, that comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worgen, which means to strangle. And did you know the literature on anxiety is pretty scary? I mean, headaches, neck pain, ulcers, back pain, heart disease, even cancer, asthma, arthritis, thyroidism, and high blood pressure, and a whole list as long as your arm has been linked to anxiety. Worry is a life thief, a joy thief. God's solution is not just a gimmick. It's simple but successful. There's no source of anxiety that can't be nipped in the bud by this solution. Peter expresses it in 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Well, how do you do it? Ah, with prayer and thanksgiving. By the way, thanksgiving is an important quality 
defining true prayer because ingratitude in prayer is nothing more than religious whining. Our gratitude index is a measure of how much we value God above everything else. Worry and discontent is indeed the emotional side of idolatry. You know that prayerlessness prayerlessness is essentially self-reliance, and self-reliance is a synonym for idolatry. Whatever we're trusting in, relying on, counting on, depending on, that is our God. And when we attach our reliance to anything other than Him, anxiety is our portion. And the only way that we cut the Gordian knot of our of our native idolatries is to run to Him in prayer. And here's the test of an authentic prayer life. It results in peace, the antithesis of anxiety. We'll stop being the age of anxiety when we become the age of prayerfulness. Now the application. Please listen to what I'm about to say, church. There are huge trials ahead. For all of us. In the Western world in particular, but really all of the planet. And the only way we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be is to pray without ceasing. We will be able to cope and conquer when prayer meetings are the most well-attended meetings in the life of the church. And that is the exact opposite of the way we are now. You want to have a small crowd in a church meeting? Call it a prayer meeting. You want to know why the Korean church is so powerful? I've told you this before. So powerful under God. The best, most well-attended meetings that the Korean church ever has are prayer meetings. Now, I know you're a praying people, but boy, boy, don't we have a ways to go yet? Secondly, ponder what's pure and praiseworthy. By the way, this is scripture. You know, whatever's, whatever is true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. I mean, what is that? That's scripture. Prayer saturated with the word soothes, soothes our anxieties, promotes gratitude, strengthens commitment to God and to each other and forwards contentment in our souls. And I don't need to tell you that meditation on the Word of God is one of the keys to application, as Joshua 1.8 says. Don't, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. The only Christians who bear fruit in the midst of adversity or prosperity are those who are absolutely obsessed with the Word of God. You know what this means? The opposite to it is that many Christians are pouring mind sewage into their brains and their souls are rotting. If garbage goes through the hatch of the mind, soon the soul will resemble a landfill. 
The mind is like the mouth of the soul. If you put junk food in the, in your mouth physically, you're going to be unhealthy. If you put spiritual junk food in your mind. And by the way, spiritual junk food is tastier to the flesh, isn't it? <laughs> when we're tired and we're discouraged and we're scared and we're frustrated, where do our minds drift? And this appetite for the Word of God has to be nurtured and developed. It isn't, an, it isn't enough to be orthodox in our opinion about the Scripture and believe that it is the very Word of God, that it's the inspired and inerrant Word of God. There's a difference between having a mind that is framed in orthodoxy and a heart that is shaped in reality. Oh, church, for whom I long, my heart's longing for you is that you would be so committed to the word that you would turn a deaf ear to all other voices, no matter how compelling, so that when life pokes you, you bleed Bible. And lastly, practice the patterns that prod you into his presence. That's verse 9. Whatever you learn, receive, heard, saw in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. In other words, don't simply archive the truth, as Stuart Briscoe said. Act on it. It's not enough to be a word storage warehouse. He imparts his peace. How? How does Jesus impart his peace to us through his word and by prayer? <laughs> by his peace being shattered. And that's what we see in this table. It is good for me to yet one more time to share in this table with you. All of my love for you and my longings for you, my joy and crown, are rooted in this shared reality.